Scott, you're very welcome to the show. Scott, uh, for people who haven't read, read your book, Addicted to Process, the first line that really got my attention, and it's, sales is the garbage can of jobs. Can you explain to me what that means? I think sales is one of these jobs that a lot of us fall into because, you know, we were not cut out for something else or got told we weren't cut out for something else. You know, you, you want to be a lawyer or a doctor, you got to go to school for a long time, you know, and really, really commit yourself. Um, you know, some of us sort of rely on our, our wit and our charm and our ability to, to talk. And it's also kind of a disrespected field, you know, for so long, I think it's been viewed in this sort of sleazy car sales kind of way. And it's just, you know, disrespect is it's like, Oh, you're a garbage man. You're like, you're not that, you know, not that professional or you're not that respected, that kind of thing. It's just something that we fall into in this, in this roundabout um, kind of way. So that was kind of what I was, what I was getting at. Yeah, I, I can fully understand that. And my own experience with it as well is that not alone is, is, it, is that kind of can be a default job. But once you fall into it, very often there's no going back. I, I used to program software. And once I left that field, I'm, I'm out of date. I, I can never go back. It's like Hotel California. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a true. great analogy. Yeah. Well, you don't want to go back too because, you know, if, if you get into sales and you experience some level of success, you know, you realize that the harder you work, the better you do, the more rewarding it can be, you know, from a financial standpoint, from a freedom and flexibility and, and sort of quality of life and structure of life. You, you can use it as a platform to coach and mentor and develop others to, to work on leadership. Um, and, you know, you, the longer you're in business, you start to realize that, every part of a company and every part of life in a way you're utilizing salesmanship, you know, one way or another, you know, if you go to the flea market, you're, you're bartering back and forth. If you're, you were a software developer, so I don't know if you ever had to, you know, manage or recruit other people, but recruiting people is, you know, salesmanship. I mean, I have an eight and a 10 year old son and I am selling against them every single day as they're trying to tell me, no, they don't want to go to bed. They don't want to go take a shower. You know, they don't want to eat this thing for dinner. And I'm going, geez, Louise, like, you know, it's a never ending battle. So we're just, we're always, we're always in sales. And, and once you get into it as a profession, very difficult, I think. I agree with you to, uh, to get out of it. Why would I want to do something else? Yeah, it, it, it kind of, uh, it, it connects very well with even the title of your book, Addicted to the Processes, says, I think you become addicted to sales. And that struck me in your book was your Hawaiian story. And maybe you could share that with our listeners because when I read it, it, it struck me as why we actually, we can become addicted to closing, that there is, there is an adrenaline rush in it. And, and if you have only success, then maybe you don't feel like a winner. You don't, you don't, you don't get that rush. And it's only those struggles so, but, but again, I, I, for people who haven't read the book and, and, and they should, maybe you could share with us your Hawaiian story. Well, you know, that, that was the first ever sales job. Actually, that was the first ever job I ever had that didn't have anything to do with, you know, either playing sports or, or coaching sports. Um, I was 27 years old at the time and I had spent the previous four years in the hospital, um, you know, fighting for my life, extremely sick, serious illnesses, major surgeries. 
And, um, you know, I got into sales for a very specific reason. You know, as a former athlete, I could understand the competitiveness of it. I could relate to, you know, the harder I worked, the better I did, the more I'd get paid. So I went to this uh, startup because I thought, well, I could, you know, if I do well, maybe I could move up quicker than if I went to, you know, some big, huge company. And, and you know, I got very little training, you know, like half a day, and then it was boom on the phone. And I absolutely was mortified. Uh, you know, the, the phone looked like it weighed 10,000 pounds. I remember telling my wife after the first day that I wanted to quit. There was no way that I was ever going to be any good at this thing. And by the end of that first week, I was the only person from my tra training class of about 15 or 20 people or so who had either not closed the deal yet or uh, who had already quit. And, you know, it was, it was Friday afternoon and I still hadn't sold. And I just wanted to keep pushing. And so I, you know, got some leads from Hawaii and Alaska and was just going to utilize the time zone change and went and got food. And I was in the office at 930 at night on a Friday night. And I cold called Hawaii and uh, I got a one call close. And it was just like the light bulb went off, you know. And, and, and for me, it was such a rush and such a relief, you know, that, that I actually had figured this thing out. Um, but that was the beginning of it for me, you know, and I realized like, man, you know, the only reason I got this deal is because I'm here grinding at the office at 930 at night on a Friday, you know, I, there's not that many people um, that I know who are doing that. And so that that lesson, you know, stuck with me. Um, it was a good experience. And, you know, I guess in some ways, I've been chasing that feeling ever since. Well, I wanted to talk to you about that and, and, and what you learned from it and how you've adapted it, because what comes very across very strong in your book is you're a transactional sales guy and we should probably look at what that means. And I'd also like to explore with you, you know, which comes first, you know, is it your character, your personality that makes you good at transactional sales or is there something else? You know, can anybody learn transactional sales? Can anybody be good at it? So maybe start with that, that Friday evening experience you had where you, you, you got that deal and at some stage shortly after you figured out a formula and again, something else that comes quite across quite strong in your book is you're a believer that once I get it to work, I got to stick with that and not get creative and not start tweaking it. So maybe, maybe start with that in terms of what you learned from it, how you've adapted and what that big picture process looks for you and what you instill in all the teams that you grow. Well, more than anything, that moment taught me that, the only chance I had was to outwork everybody else. You know, I, I didn't have a, a business degree. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have work experience. I'd never sold anything in my life. And I thought, you know, the only competitive advantage I have here is to outwork everybody. So I started being, you know, as cliche as it is, I was the first guy in the office at like 6 a.m. every day. I was the last person to leave at 6.30, 7 o'clock every night. Um, I ended up roping in a couple other guys uh, that were working working with me and into the same schedule. So I kind of had like a workout partner kind of thing. And you know, the, the, the longer I, <clears throat> I went with that schedule, uh, my growth curve just accelerated. You know, I was learning faster. I was making more calls. I was failing more. I, was, I started succeeding more. And I just started noticing, uh, you know, a pattern in, in how I was able to, to get these deals. And, you know, the one thing that, that I have been lucky with is, you know, I've always been the type of person that's like, you know, if this thing starts working, I'm not going to tweak it. 
I'm going to, I'm going to keep sticking with it until it doesn't work anymore for a sustained period of time. You know, I, I played college tennis. So I was playing tennis, you know, my whole life. It's like, well, once I have a, my service motion down and I, and I'm doing quite well and I'm, I'm competitive and I'm, you know, high ranking in these things, I'm not going to go change my service motion all of a sudden. It's going to totally screw me up just because I double fault a couple of times. Right. Or just because I lose a match doesn't mean I need to reboot my entire, uh, my entire game. So that, uh, I think became another competitive advantage that I had. Um, just my ability to not tinker and, and not overanalyze and constantly change things if, if something wasn't working. Um, and, and so th those are two key learnings that I had in the early part of my, my sales career. Um, you, you, you mentioned also, you know, kind of the, the transactional, transactional um, aspect and, and me in particular relating to that. I, I do think it comes down a little bit to what type of person you are and what's your personality. Um, I, I think that you just need to be really self-aware, you know, and for me, one of my biggest weaknesses is I'm a very impatient person, all right? I don't understand and I don't know that I'll ever understand why it takes anybody 12 to 18 months to make a decision about anything. I can't think of a single thing that would ever take me that long to make a decision about. Mm. So if I was going to go into a, you know, big, huge, long enterprise sales cycle, uh, I worry that I would get very frustrated by, uh, you know, just the, the amount of cooks in the kitchen and just how long and tedious the process would go. And I really actually don't care what the payoff would be, you know, um, I would be bored. I'm the type of person that I either want to win or lose every single day. I want, you know, relatively instant feedback. And I think that, again, that goes back to kind of the competitor, in me, you know, and I don't want to come home closing four deals a year. That sounds absolutely terrible to me. You know, I want to close a deal every single day if I can, right? Multiple deals a week you know, yeah. a couple dozen deals a month type of thing. And so for me, you know, and knowing my personality and, and being self-aware, I, I realized that I was better suited, especially early on in my career for a more transactional sales environment where you're going to close more deals and it's a volume based game as opposed to these, you know, longer sales cycles and these strategic type accounts and that, and that type of thing that's often very glorified. And, and that's one of the reasons, honestly, that I wrote the book because I feel like transactional sales has been disrespected um, for way too long. I don't necessarily think that transactional sales is easier or harder than enterprise sales. I, I just think they're, they're quite different. I, I think that people can do both, uh, but you have to be aware enough to put yourself in the proper environment that's going to, you know, suit your skill set and your personality and, and contribute the most to your success. Yeah, that, that, that really jumped out at me because I, I've often said that I, I would really struggle with transactional sales because I think to be successful at it, you have to have what you have there, that high, that high what we call control and close, that need for next, next, let's go. And I'm impatient. I want that. And also I want that, that, that immediate feedback, that rush. And I don't want to wait for you know, three months to get that. I want it today. I want it tomorrow. And I also think that requires a lot of discipline to, from a behavioral point of view, to have the habits and the discipline to do the stuff day in, day out without kind of saying, oh, I'll do that next week. It has to be done today. 
And if that's not your personality, you will never succeed in transactional sales. And likewise, I think people who are, who have, and you already said it, who have that impatience would probably not succeed. It doesn't mean, but it doesn't mean you, you, you couldn't do it, but it would be so tiring. It would be like a fish out of water for you to yeah. be in an enterprise type of city. It, it, it mentally drain you. you yeah. Know? I don't think that, I don't know that you'd have the same, um, you know, you wouldn't you just wouldn't be as happy, right? You yeah. wouldn't be as happy with oh, what you're doing. Exactly. For me, it's it's like the it's like the introvert who can be very personable and very good at building relationships with people, but when they've had a day interacting with people, they have to go home, close the door, go to their cave, and that's how yep. they recover. And I think it's the yeah. same. And I think it's often missed out when people are are hiring and recruiting people. I don't think they give enough thought to does that individual match the role and what's required yeah uh, i agree it's definitely something that you know i'm still trying to perfect as the as the years go by picking it up in other people trying to help other people um, be self-aware so they put themselves in the position to succeed um, but I, I think it i think you absolutely hit the nail on the head now you did say something else about enterprise sales which i wanted to uh I wanted to challenge you with, which was, you'll never convince me that the enterprise selling makes you a better rep. What did you mean by that? Well, I just don't think it's any more difficult than transactional sales. I think that they're difficult in, in just different ways. You'll, you'll never convince me that somebody who's done really well at transactional sales is a worse salesperson than somebody who's done well as an enterprise sales rep. And the same can be said vice versa. And I just think that there is sort of this hierarchy for some reason that enterprise salespeople are, you know, the best of the, the best. And I just don't necessarily agree with that. Yeah, no, I, and I agree with what you're saying. I, I read that differently when I read it. And um, my understanding from it was that, you know, if, if you're a good enterprise sales rep, you're not learning as much as you are a transactional sales rep, but I read that in completely incorrectly. I think you're, you're yeah, that, that, that's, that's definitely not how I meant it. Um, although, you know, um, a lot of people start their career in transactional sales and, and move their way up to enterprise sales. So an argument could be made that if you're in transactional sales, you're, you're most likely earlier in your career. And so maybe you are learning more and you know, the learning starts to slow down for some people. I think the best of the best enterprise sales reps though, um, they're absolutely pushing themselves to learn and grow and develop new yeah. tactics, new techniques all the time. Yeah. Um, I have met many salespeople that are enterprise sales reps at big, huge companies that become very um, stationary and static. You know, mm -hmm. I've used this phrase before where people go to some of these big orgs to sort of hang out and hide out, you know, mm -hmm. where they just yeah. want to exist without the, without the pressure mm -hmm. and they don't want to grow. They don't want to push themselves. Um, certainly the best enterprise sales reps are not those type of people at all. No, you know, but, but you, you are right in that you can, you can hide for six months in that type of organization. You cannot hide in a transactional sales organization. No, you, you, you absolutely no. cannot. No, no. no. You, have, you have to make check at the pay, pay, payday at the end of every week. Um, yeah. something else I wanted to explore with you, Scott was, and I'm paraphrasing here was, I wrote down, don't attach your ego to the outcome. Focus on the process. And you, what you said was process is 
a series of habits, decisions, and actions. And I wanted to just go over, you know, go into that a little bit more because for me, you know, habits require an incredible amount of discipline and and and, and energy. Decisions, it's you know, what what makes a good decision maker is different, and what how you know those who are very action oriented again is very different. So just let drill down on that. What does it really take to be successful, to be the one with the productive transactional habits? What did you mean by decisions and actions? Where, how does that make you better as a, as, as a transactional rep? Well, you know, you said something about habits require a ton of discipline. And, um, you know, good habits require a ton of discipline. I don't think bad habits require a ton of discipline. Good habits require a ton of discipline. And to have that discipline, I think you're constantly making these little decisions, you know, every second of every day to stay on track, right? Is this particular decision going to help me get to where I want to go, right? Um, And, you know, in transactional sales, high volume, you're making tons of calls, right? You, you have to have the faith that the actions and that you're taking, the, the way you're handling objections, the, the approach to your pitch and, and your demo, you have to have the faith that you're doing these things the right way mm. and you cannot get attached to the outcome of every single call because it's, you know, cliched again, but it's just a numbers game. You know, if, if you close one out of a hundred deals in a transaction, one out of a hundred dials, excuse me, in a transactional uh, sales environment, you're an absolute rock star, right? I mean, you're, you're the Lionel Messi of, of transactional sales at that point. But if you get attached to the outcome of, of every single call and every single conversation you have, you're going to drive yourself crazy and you're going to walk out of the room depressed because you're going to fail 99% yep. of the time or more. Yep. So you have to make the decision, you know, when somebody hangs up on you or when somebody that you thought was going to say yes ends up saying no, you've got to make a quick decision that's like, well, you know, that's just one of the ones that's going to say no. Let me move on. Get to the next thing. As opposed to beating yourself up over it, right? And, and overanalyzing it or deciding to commiserate in a, in a pool of negativity at the water cooler with a couple other salespeople on your team whose deals also didn't close, yeah. right? I mean, I made the conscious decision to only associate myself with people who were doing really well and people who wanted to be great, not just good, and people who were willing to go you know, to the far ends of the earth, if you will, to make it happen. And, you know, I had a reputation on the floor for not being the friendliest person. And it was not because, uh, in my opinion, at least it wasn't because I wasn't friendly. It was because I was myopically focused on how do I get better? How do I hit this number? And after I hit this number, how do I hit the number beyond that? And how can I learn from my buddies over here? What are they they doing that I can incorporate? And I just didn't want to have anything to do with people who are going to mess up my flow or disrupt my energy or bring me down in any way. Yeah. So that, that's kind of what I was getting at. No, and it makes perfect sense. So Scott, you mentioned there, or, or, or what I'm hearing is there was real hunger and the hunger gave you that laser like focus on the goal, eye on the prize. And that, that gave you a ton of energy. And, and you talk about it in the book about, about hunger. That, that's what, makes people successful. I wanted to explore that with you as well, because hunger is, is, is often, I guess, interpreted as, as a desire 
for a prize, something down the future that I want to achieve. Uh, what about the, the, the flip side of that, that, the burning platform, the fear of failure in terms of motivation? Is it equal to, is it different? When you're looking at reps and you're hiring reps, is it the hunger for something that you're looking for? Is it? Well, there's, yeah, there's a difference between a fear of failure and an absolute loathing of failure and a hatred of, of failure. Okay. The fear of failure, uh, you know, I suppose it can motivate some people, but I think it paralyzes more people than not. Uh, it, it causes them not to try sometimes. Yes. Right. But you know, any top performing athlete or, or business person potentially always is going to tell you that they hate to lose more than anything, more than they like to win. They absolutely hate to lose. Yeah. And that is, is definitely a motivating factor for me, you know? And yeah. you, you know, you, you, you just learn hopefully, you know, that, there's just a limited number of opportunities that we have in, in, in this life to try to do something special, you know, to try to attain and achieve, um, you know, something magical to try to better yourself and your family, um, and get to, you know, another place, um, you know, financially or, or stability or freedom, or, you know, maybe you want to travel or put your kids through school or whatever, you know, and, and when you come from nothing, or you've had something and it's all stripped away from you. Uh, I think for some people that desire, you know, is just all the way dialed up to a hundred and you're going to do anything you can to get out of there, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, you know, my health crisis took away everything from me. It took away my athletic career. It took away whatever path I was on in, in academia or, or in the corporate world. And I had four years of struggle and pain and trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to do when I get out of here? And just visualizing like how bad I wanted to go breathe fresh air, you know, yeah. and how I couldn't wait to get off these, these drugs that were also holding me back. And, you know, you deprive somebody who already is competitive and already, you know, has a bit of hunger. You deprive them of that opportunity and they, unleashed are you know an absolute monster and they're going to do whatever it takes and so you know i think for me it, it it heightened my sense of urgency it made me mature very quickly um and sort of you know i didn't have that opportunity to sort of bugger off my uh my early to mid-20s like a lot of people do you know um and so i just realized like man i don't have that much time left you know yeah. if you think about you know trying to retire, if any of us were lucky enough to do that anymore these days, but if you're trying to retire, maybe by the time you're 65 and you're 25 years old right now, let's say you're going to spend an average of four years at, at every company that you go to. That means you got 10 jobs in the next 40 years. That's it. You got 10 opportunities, 10 at bats. If you're a, you know, major league baseball fan. So what are you going to do with each of those opportunities? You know, why would you waste your time on a company that's not going anywhere or a company that's not helping you grow or why would you work for somebody who's not mentoring and developing you or why would you stay somewhere that is paying you less than you know you deserve use each one of these roles as a stepping stone to better your situation um, and, and, and that type of hunger you know is 
what I want in everybody who, who works for me. Um, I, I definitely think that that, you know, is responsible for some of my, uh, well, yeah, yeah. That, that kind of problem, my next question, cause I was going to ask you if, if you would say that your illness gave you a sense of urgency, maybe gave you a, 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 a huge drive. And if so, how do people who maybe haven't had that experience find that drive? Yeah, well, it absolutely did for me. Um, you know, I've, I've often been asked, you know, if I could go back, would I, would I change things? And that's a hell of a question to, to answer. But I, I certainly don't believe that I would be where I am now without going, going through that. Um, you know, it, 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 you know, we talked earlier a little bit about fear of failure. To me, that thing that I went through is hopefully going to be the hardest thing that I ever go through in my entire life. And so knowing that and knowing I survived it gave me a great deal of confidence. And it's like, well, if I can get through that, I really have nothing to worry about. You know, if I lose my job tomorrow, so what? I'll be fine. Right. Um, if I don't make this sale, big deal, you know? Um, so it, it definitely, definitely fueled me. That being said, I sure as hell don't want to advocate anybody going through some type of sure. existential life crisis or, you know, massive, uh, breakup or shakedown of their family situation or a health crisis or anything like that. Um, but you, what you can do is you can learn from people who've had to go through those things. Yeah. You know, you can learn from you their can, stories. You can, you can learn from their stories. Absolutely. You know, yeah. um, seek out, seek out people who, you know, can guide you and mentor you and develop you people who, you know, you respect or, or you, you know, relate to some of their story, you know, try to engage them in, in, in conversation or, uh, you know, even, I mean, you're in Ireland and I'm in Austin, Texas, like, you know, but we're having, we're having a dialogue and we're learning from each other and, and creating a relationship here, you know, and try to keep some of those, those people, uh, close and find people who push you and motivate you as opposed to put limits on you or yep. put fear, put fear in, in, in your head, you know? Um, and, and, and maybe you can try to get a perspective of, you know, you're at an advantage, a strategic advantage. You know, I interview kids all the time who are 24 to 25, 26 years old. And, you know, they've had three or four years of sales experience already. And they're, you know, worried about where they're at in their career. And I'm like, shit, I didn't have a job yet, dude. You're crushing it. You know, like get some perspective. You're, you're making, you know, almost six figures already. And I, didn't, I you know, I was in a hospital bed, like yeah. you're doing fine, you know? Um, so get, get a little bit of perspective, you know, talk to people who've, who've been through stuff before so you can learn from their experiences so you don't have to go through it on your own. Yeah. You mentioned actually your experience gave you great confidence and confidence was one of seven elements of what you said made up a successful mindset. You said confidence, motivation, tenacity, self-improvement, work ethic, ambition, and courage. Is it possible even to order those or to say, well, which one is most important? Which one would you say start with? And I know that's not practical, but if you were you know, coaching people and you were trying to get them and they had none of these, which one would you work on first? Well, people's self-esteem and their confidence to me is the most, the most important thing. People who feel good, uh, you know, perform better. People who feel good about themselves perform even better. Yeah. So to me, you know, give me somebody who has legitimate self-esteem and you know all the confidence in the world but no sales experience no business experience anything like that 
and I'll work with them, you know? And the people who come to work with me who have lots of uh, good sales skills and ability, but struggle with self-esteem or identity or, or confidence, that's, that's the first thing. And sometimes the only thing that I really work with them on in terms of my, my coaching or, or my, my one-on-ones, you know, you might not be somebody who needs to hear me talk about how to close a deal or how to run a demo properly. That's not what, what I'm here for, for you. I'm here for you to talk about like, you know, the things that are bothering you in, 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 in your life. And, you know, how can we sort some of these things out? And, you know, you're my number one rep, but you don't think you're doing very good. And you're so hot, you're beating yourself up because this one particular deal didn't close. Like, let's get to the root cause of that, you know? And um, so, yeah, so, so self-esteem and confidence to me, I, I would start there if you, if you made me choose. And you also talked, because okay, courage was on the list as well. And a funny story you had, or one that certainly resonated with me was the idea of walking through the security lane, the, uh, the, the fast pass lane. Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, you know, just to act as if, uh, yeah. as a great way of building, you know, by facing, facing a fear and just take tackling it. Uh, yeah. I, I've had more than a few people reach out to me in, in the last, uh, six months or so since, since the book came out and said, Hey, I tried that airport thing and it totally worked. <laughs> and uh i, I get i get a, a laugh out of out of it i don't know you know what like i said i didn't know what i was doing when i was first getting started you yeah. know and i was terrified of, of that phone i had to outwork everybody and, and i knew i needed to work on my on my confidence and i was just trying to i was trying to immerse myself in this world of sales and confidence and staying in control as best i could so, you know, whereas I wouldn't send back a food order if they screwed it up before because I felt bad and didn't want to bother anybody. Mm. Now I would be like, hey, you know, uh, you know, I ordered a burger, not a, you know, not a salad or whatever. Right. Yeah. And send it back, yeah. you know, and I'm like, well, you know, I really don't want to stand in this line, to be honest with you. Let me see if I can go, you know, through there might, might not be the most, you know. Yeah. above the board thing but let me just work on this uh this confidence here I, 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 what, what i find it was funny with that is that pe- people often you know understandably if, if you were about to do that and you were fully aware and you didn't do it by accident it would be understand that it'd be some nuts in your stomach because you're uncomfortable with it and i think the problem is people listen to that rather than asking right. themselves well what's the worst thing that could happen here right ask right. me you know, and you and you go, oh, listen, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I wasn't quite quite aware of you know where I was, my mistake. You, you know, and they they overanalyze and over worry about it rather than just doing yeah. it. And and t- or what they'll do is when when they do it because they're so uncomfortable, they're just drawing attention to themselves. Yep. And and I think that's that's also a, maybe a an introduction to what something I wanted to talk to you about was because you're you're heavy on process. And. Yeah. There was nothing I could disagree with wholeheartedly, you know, in terms of finding the pain and, and you know, that had to happen first. And I love your, 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 your addiction analogy that, you know, you just don't walk up to somebody who has an addiction problem and say, hey, listen, uh, I can recommend a, a great place for you to overcome your addiction. They have to admit to it first. And it's so true that when you're selling and whether it's transactional or, or solution sales, that unless people not alone are aware of the symptoms, but aware of the impact of the problem and admit to it and admit that they need help, then anything, any kind of offer, presentation is just going to be completely discounted. I absolutely love that. 
Uh, and I yeah. thought it was a great analogy because it just helps people get it. And I think that's the big yeah. problem I see so often in sales. And what I read, you're the exact same, is that I think it's the default position to go in and start talking about what we have and what we do. And it's yeah. just being a brick wall. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's the part that so many salespeople and so many sales organizations screw up, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, just overly focused on themselves and overly focused on their product and what it can provide. And, you know, and nobody, ca has, nobody cares if they don't think it is relevant to them. For sure. For sure. Are you familiar with the humans of New York? Uh, yeah, you, that's like the photos yeah. and the little uh, stories and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and the guy, and I cannot remember his name off the top of my head. I'll, I'll put it in the credits. Um, who's behind that? He gave a talk at University College Dublin, and I know you're familiar with that. You, you spend time in Ireland, uh, and he was talking about the background to how he started out in the streets, interviewing people, and how it evolved. And what he said, would, and this really fascinated me, I thought there were so many parallels to sales and transactional sales in particular, was that he said, look, I'm not the best photographer out there. I'm certainly not the best journalist. But after introducing myself to over 10,000 people cold on the street, I'm hmm. probably pretty good at you know, walking up to strangers and, and getting yeah. them op open up to me, which is what we do, especially in transactional sales. They're all strangers. Yeah. Uh, and what he said was really interesting, or one of the many things, and I, again, I'll put the link in the credits because people should watch that YouTube video. There's so many rich lessons from this guy. But one of them was this. He said, I used to obsess over what I'd say. You know, can I take your picture? Can I take your portrait? Would you mind if I yeah. took your photo? Obsess he's obsessing over the exact yeah. right and, thing to say. Right? And he said, yeah. none yeah. of it mattered. He said, what mattered was my energy, my presence when I approach people. And can that be taught? And if so, where does that fit into the addicted model? Well, I think it, I think it absolutely can be taught um, to a degree. I, I, I think you have to have a little bit of natural ability. You know, I, I, don't, I don't personally believe I could take any single random stranger off the street and, and turn them into a successful salesperson. But I think if you have some aspect of your personality and some natural aptitude and ability, then you can teach these things. You know, I've often said, it's not about what you say. It's about how you say it. It's about, you know, the, the tonality that you use. It's about the cadence in, in, in your sentences. You know, do you, what, what words do you emphasize? What is, what is your body language like? This kind of thing. Um, so, you know, how do I, how do I apply that to the, the addiction model? I mean, I, I think I think you apply it in the questions that you ask, and the sincerity of your desire to learn more about people's business and to help them solve these these problems. You know, I, I work with my teams all the time, and I have for over a decade on on how they say these questions or or how they get somebody, you know, to admit they have a problem. I can't just walk up to you and say, hey. You know, your business is struggling because here's why I've got to, I've got to, you know, softly and adeptly ask a question that, you know, builds some level of, of connection and trust that allows people to, to open up and, and start to reveal those things. And, and as that conversation evolves and develops, prospects become open to hearing about how I might be able to solve that for them. Mm. Makes sense.
Makes sense. Danny, as I, as I was talking about it when I introduced you, Scott, you have started and grown several startup SaaS companies. And if you were, if you were Greenfield site, you were walking into a building and, and doing it again, now that you've had all this experience and years as a practitioner, what do you, what do you look for first? What, 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 what are the, I guess they, the, the success lessons that you've learned from having done it successfully several times now at this stage? Well, I'm doing it again right now. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not done. That's a, that's a fantastic question. And I could answer it so many different ways, you know, like based on the, the role somebody's in or, or looking for, but you know, you, you asked it for me, what do I look for? Um, at this point in my career, I'm looking for a best in class product that I can get behind. You know, I've, I've done my time, uh, selling things that were in a very crowded space and trying to find differentiators and, and, you know, the, the challenges that are associated with that. Now I, I'm at a stage in my career where I want, I want to work with, you know, the best product. I want to have the best sales organization in an industry. I want to have the best customer success organization, the best engineering team. I want to surround myself with the best talent. You know, I think early in my career, I might've thought that I could sort of do everything myself in a way, you know, put the whole team on my back kind of thing. And, uh, that's just not possible. You know, it's only going to get you, you know, so far. And so I, I think I've become more adept at, uh, you know, being able to notice the right characteristics in, in companies and in, in founders, in market opportunities, uh, in, in the talent that I'm, you know, going to try to surround myself with and, and these kind of things. So, you know, said differently, just try to bet on a winning horse. Yeah. Well, I, I, it make, it makes sense. I also, there's, I, and again, this is just a finger in the air anecdotal, but my sense also is I think it's harder and harder now to sell products that aren't differentiated. It's not that it's lazy. I think that buyers are less tolerant uh, because because they have so much research at their fingertips. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. And there's also some fields that uh, you know many of the competitors are are all powerful and and, and effective um, pieces of software, and the differentiators between them are minuscule. You know, some, somebody might claim to have one feature that another that somebody else doesn't, and somebody else probably claims they've got better customer service and support and that separates, separates them. Um, you know, so for me now, I think as I move forward in my career and, and certainly where I'm at now with my company Qualia, you know, I feel very strongly that we've got best in class product on the market, best in class, you know, engineering team. We're building the best in class sales and, and customer success organization. And that just gives me a tremendous amount of, of confidence and hope uh, for the future of, of, you know, where we're headed and, um, you know, that would be my advice to, to people is to, is to look for those kind of things if you can. Okay. Scott, I'm conscious of time, but I had two uh, quick questions for you before we, we begin to wrap it up. Uh, you said that everybody has a reason for wanting to succeed and to say it's about money is a cop-out. And, and I don't disagree with that. What it does, though, it begs the question for me is, why do we tend to default then to money as a method of... Because it's because it's the easiest scorecard. 
it's the easiest scorecard, right? It's very black and white. You know, you made a hundred grand, I made 101. So I'm better. I win. Right. Um, but it, it's not just about the, the money. It's about what are you going to do with the money? You know, I, I've often had conversations with, with sales managers or, or sales reps of mine. You know, we're talking about goal setting. It's one of the trainings that I do every year. And they're like, well, I'm going to make, you know, hundred thousand dollars this year. And I'm like, okay, great. Why? What, what are you, you going to do with it? Hmm. You know, I think that you drill people down to be as specific as humanly possible. That's when they can really start to, um, yeah, you know, materialize. What in, in terms so, of you know, it, in terms of motivation, is commission the best way to do it? I know it's an easy way, but you know, sometimes a pat in the back, I would have thought, is a it's harder to scale, but it's a it's 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 more motivating for some people. For some for some people, but. Um, you know, I don't know that people who all they need is a pat on the back are, you know, going to be the best salespeople, um, or sales leaders that are out there. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think they need both. Right. Yeah. Like if, if I was to ask my team, like, you know, what do you want a commission check or a pat on the back? They're all going <laughs> to default. They're all going to default to commission check for yeah, sure. But, but, but really what they want is both. What's yeah, really what they right, want is you're both. Right. You're right. Cause they want, a commission, they want a commission check. They want to be appreciated. Okay. I yeah. think I think they want to learn. They want to grow. Like I've been saying, they want to be developed. They want to be helped. They want you to remove barriers out of their way. They yeah. want you to help them go from being a six-figure sales rep to a quarter-million-dollar rep. They want you to take them from sales manager to VP of, of of sales. You know, so it's a means to an end. So you know, I want to make as much money as possible too. But I want to make enough money to do certain things, to travel certain places, to you know, put money aside for my kids to, to go to college, to be able to take care of, uh, you know, my family's health. Right. Yeah. I'm not the type of person who's like, well, I want to make a million dollars so I can go buy a Lamborghini. I don't care about that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I care about other things, experiences and whatnot. So, you know, the money is just, it's freedom. It's, it's flexibility. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's not, and, a, you know, not, a, not everybody might be, you know, purely motivated by, by money or, or some of these things. Some people are motivated a lot by recognition. You yeah. know, um, yeah. some people want their name in lights, maybe more than they want the, the, the check. But I, I think everybody truly, I think everybody wants a little bit of all of it. Yeah. No harm in that. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to say two words to you, Scott, and I wanted to get your gut reaction to it. Just whatever comes to your mind. Uh, okay. Are you ready? Here we go. Social service. Social selling. So social selling. Uh, what comes to my mind is extremely relevant depending on what type of product and industry you're working in. Okay. Is it relevant to transactional selling? Um, I don't think so because in transactional selling, you just don't have to be as strategic. Perfect example. You know, one of the first sales gigs I ever had we were calling real estate agents and we were selling lead generation uh, tools, online leads in the early days of online leads to real estate agents and, and brokers. It just did not require a ton of, um, of research. It just required me calling people up and saying, Hey Scott, uh, you a real estate agent in Austin. Oh, cool. You, you're still with Keller Williams. How long, how long have you been in business there? And just having a dialogue and a, and yeah. a conversation, you know, Whereas in a, in a different, you know, maybe 
higher priced, more strategic type of sale, it's very important to know what, who the decision, decision makers are. What's the hierarchy? What are the people going to be involved? It's really hard to get the right people on the phone nowadays. So you use social selling to find a hook, right? So if you're reaching out to me, and you didn't know this till we were talking earlier, but I spent a lot of time in Dundalk, Ireland, you know, about 21 years ago, mm. right? That would have been an easy hook to get my attention. You know, if you said, hey, Scott, you know, heard you used to live and, and play some soccer in, in Dundalk, right? Mm. I, I'm going to read that, and I'm going to respond to that more than the 500 other emails I get today that, you know, there's nothing that catches and stands out. So I think, I think it's very relevant to try to get people to pay attention to you and, and, and get pickups, right? Get responses to emails, get pickups mm -hmm. on the phone, that kind of thing. But there's some industries that, you know, like my industry, you know, right now we sell to, we sell title insurance software to people in the title insurance business. Frankly, there's not a lot of people who uh, are using social media platforms in this industry. So yeah. there, there's not a ton of social selling that, that is involved in it. Right. Yeah. So I just think it depends on, uh, you know, what you're selling. Yeah. You said earlier you're a huge fan of goal setting. Is, is journaling part of that for you? Is it something that you do? I don't do a ton of journaling. No, I, I do sort of summary. I write like end of the year uh, thing, you know, all the things that I've done. Um, and then, you know, goals for the, for the following year. I keep that goal sheet up in front of me all the time. And I, cross it off a list and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. I certainly have no problem with, with journaling. I, I, it'd be very easy. It would not be hard at all to convince me that it's something that I should do and uh, should be doing. It's just not something that, that I do um, yeah. a ton of, you know. Final question for you, Scott. Um, advice to 20-year-old Scott. If they're, you know, advice to... Yeah, what, 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 would you say, yeah. what would you say to 20-year-old Scott who's just coming out of college? Um, you, you know what I would have, what I would have said is um, when I was in college, I, it was 1997, I guess, when I was 20 years old. Um, and that was kind of in the middle of the first like dot-com gold rush in, in the Bay Area. Mm. And I was going to college in the Bay Area. And I didn't have a goddamn clue about what was going on at all. So my advice to myself would have been to, you know, pick my head up from the the studies and the shenanigans going on and the sports going on and look around at all these people, you know, starting up these, these cool companies and, you know, advancing careers and making money hand over fist. Um, it was just a, it was just a different world then, you know, I got all the way through college without ever having an email address, if you can believe that. You know, I think I'm like the last of my kind, right? Yeah. Um, you know, my brother who's four years younger, he was, he was on top of that stuff way sooner. So yeah. I, I guess my, my advice would, would have been to like get more serious about my career sooner, you know, um, yeah. as much as I, as much as I know that the, uh, you know, the four year struggle that I had really shaped me and, and, and made me better it is difficult sometimes to not look back and say, you know, where would I be now if I didn't have those, if I had those four years back, but yeah. I still had the same sort of, you know, knowledge and skill set. And if I take that back even further, you know, that'd be seven years if I would have started when I was 20. So that would be my advice to myself. Get cool. serious sooner. Scott, it's been a fascinating conversation. I want to thank you so much for your wisdom and your insights. Uh, it's been just, just chalkers. Um, Again, your your time is really appreciated. I know I know how precious it is, and 
you know, given that time up for our listeners is, is, is extremely valuable. 